Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, internationally renowned historian Robert Service talks about his book The Last of the Sires, Nicholas II and the Russian Revolution. Chaired by Patrick Gagan of Trinity College Dublin, the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 1st of October 2017. Okay, this is a great crowd, and thank you all for coming out this afternoon. So uh, I think Robert Service needs no introduction. Uh, For many years, Professor of Russian History at the University of Oxford. He's a fellow of the British Academy, a fellow at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. And as we've heard in the introduction, uh, the author of some brilliant books on Russian history, including biographies of Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky. And maybe the first question, Robert, is... Mm. Uh, Why did you decide to go back in time a little bit and write this book about the last 16 months of Nicholas II's life? Well, um, the original impetus was that I was working on the end of the Cold War. And um, realising that I didn't have another stew in the pot... And uh, one of the archivists in Stanford said, uh, are you at all interested in the abdication of Nicholas II? Because we have the original abdication document. And I mean, who would say, who would say no to that? So they pulled it out of the safe and it had all of the little legal suggestions uh, written in the margin in pencil by the legal advisor. And then on further inquiry, uh, it turned out that they had just digitized the inquiry into the death of Nicholas II. So there were 1,500 pages that had had not been properly looked at by historians of interviews and interrogations, actually some of them were, of people who'd known Nicholas II in the last 16 months of his life. And again, this seemed like too good a chance to miss. But the real attraction of doing this was a thought I had that... Nicholas II was a very elusive character. People who knew him as his ministers or as his secretaries or even people at the court who were well acquainted with him always felt that he held something back. Uh, He was a very political tsar. He didn't always speak his mind. So people called him the cushion because if he sat, he, he, when, he, when ministers left the room, they thought he'd accepted their opinion. He was a cushion who'd been sat upon by the ministers. But then they found the next day that he'd done the exact opposite of what he said. So when is a man likely to tell the truth? It's surely when he's in confinement 
when he's got nothing to lose, when he's talking to servants at last for the first time from the bottom of his heart, when he's talking to his jailers, when he's talking to the guards in, in the houses of confinement that uh, he was put in. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a way into finding out who was the real Nicholas II. And that was the real, that was the real impetus for writing this book. I really think that uh, by looking at the last terrible months of his life, you can discover what this man was all about, who had ruled Russia since 1894. Apart from Stalin, no one has ruled Russia for that long, for centuries. Uh, even Putin hasn't ruled Russia that long yet. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that, that, was, that was the real impetus for the book. As Brendan said in the introduction, it, we think it's maybe a story that we know very well. Yeah. But then as we go through the book, we realize that uh, there are interesting <clears throat> twists and turns. And I suppose mm. I wasn't fully clear in my head of the chronology starting it. So I was expecting Rasputin to feature, but of course yeah. Rasputin had been knocked off. No, he's dead. He's dead already. Yeah. Uh, but he still exerts a little bit of an influence, especially on mm. uh, Alexandra. Yeah, they, Alexandra the Empress was really entranced by, by Rasputin. Uh, Rasputin was not just a, a, an evil genius. I don't think he was an evil genius at all, actually. I mean, what's evil about calming a boy whose doctors can't calm him when he has a, a bout of haemophilia. He was also an orthodox Christian believer with connections to the priesthood without being an official orthodox priest who had his roots in much more earthy peasant religion than the the priests and bishops and archbishops that Nicholas II really didn't have much time for. So he gave him a connection. Rasputin gave him a connection with some bits of peasant Russia that he otherwise wouldn't have known anything about. So actually I've got a lot more time for Rasputin than the hammer horror film that I saw in my youth, which I, I used to think was the whole truth. Um, but I don't think it really is. What about Nicholas II then? Because as you say in the introduction, there's these two great images of, of, of Nicholas. It's either one, he's this devoted father, yeah. loving husband, general nice guy. And on the other, he's this autocratic dictatorial, harsh ruler, tyrant, and that that's why there was a, a revolution that got rid of him. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that he was a wonderful father. 
I say a wonderful father. Some of the jailers didn't think too much of his um, choice of tutors for the children. Um, but he meant well. He meant well. He gave them an education that he thought was good for them. And that's the other side of him. He was really autocratic in his politics, big time. And so he was both things at once. He was a well-meaning, decent father. He would, have, he would have fitted in well as a sort of country squire. He wasn't too worried about his personal appearance. So when he was in captivity, his, his boots had holes in them. His, his coat had ragged sleeves. Um, and he didn't live luxuriously. He, he wasn't one of those czars who wanted to live the high life. Um, he was a very modest, provincial squire sort of person. But he was also obsessed with clawing back as much autocratic power as he possibly could. So you can be these two things at once. I mean, it's often said, look at Hitler. Hitler loved dogs. How could he have been such a horrible person if he loved dogs? Well, if Nicholas II loved his family, it doesn't mean to say he wasn't an autocrat. Um, who was disappointed that he'd given too many concessions to his people. So in terms of his fall then in 1917, what kind of czar do you think he had been up until that time? And did he bring this destruction down on himself? I think, I think he was worse than he appeared. Uh, the thing that really shook me was that I, I was ready to see that he was casually anti-Semitic. What really shook me was how virulently, viciously anti-Semitic he was. He read in the evenings when he was in captivity to his children the protocols of the elders of Zion, a forgery purporting to show that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. He blamed everything on the Jews. He did up a list of the <laughs> people like Lenin and, and then had their yes. surname, what he believed was their proper Jewish surname. Yes. And he thought that this was evidence of, yeah. of, of the conspiracy, the global conspiracy. The global con he thought that Russia was the first to fall and that soon other countries would would fall to the Jews. So he, he was really quite viciously anti-Semitic. So uh, when ruling Russia, he felt that he hadn't been hard enough on the Jews. He didn't like the Germans very much, but then Russia was fighting Germany in the First World War. Probably not many Russians had much time for G Germans in the First World War. Um, but uh, he was he was a pretty hard case so uh, yeah I was shocked by that 
chapter on uh, mm. the anti-Semitism and mm. uh, this paranoia that that took over. Yeah. Uh, do you think that was something that just really became so much worse when he was in captivity that he was looking for someone to blame and he fixated on on, on, on Jewish people? Or do you think there was that was something that was always there? I think it was always there. And it, it meant that we're talking about a Tsar who was living in times when it would have been almost a miracle if a successful reform could have taken place. It, it would have called for a real visionary ruler, someone who could see the problems of the country and work out a strategy for moderating the tensions in the country. I mean, the peasants wanted the land from the landlords, the workers wanted more, uh, more better wages from their employers, um, the middle classes wanted uh, parliamentary reforms. There were so many things to um, settle in the, oh yeah, and all of the non-Russian nationalities wanted better treatment from what they regarded as an imperial Russian administration. It would have required a very special sort of person to, to settle all of that. And he wasn't that kind of person at all. He was a very limited man with very limited, narrow ideas. Uh, and he did bring a he did bring it upon his own head um, by being so so limited and so dogged and so autocratic. Um, alongside that, though, it's hard to see that Russia would have broken up in such a brutal way had there not been a world war going on, had, it, had Russia not been subject to huge economic and administrative and um, international, internal international strains. It's hard to see that it would have happened in this sort of drastic way. I mean, Lenin, Lenin was the lucky beneficiary of all of this. Lenin was sitting in Switzerland scribbling, quite a happy man most of the time because he was a very bookish man, the, the, the World War gave Lenin his chance. It, it, it gave him a country that was breaking up. The Bolsheviks would never have been able to take power in um, even a semi-stable Russia. So let's start then with the February Revolution. Mm. What happens to Nicholas and his family and where are they put in captivity? Well, to start, to start with, they, they, they stayed where they were uh, once Nicholas II withdrew from the Eastern Front. And he went back to his family who were living in the Alexander Palace outside Petrograd because they didn't like the high life of Petrograd. So they preferred to live outside the capital. And for some months they were kept there. 
And then they were moved to Western Siberia, to a uh, quite a small town called Tobolsk, mainly for their own safety. And then there was the October Revolution led by the communists in October. Uh, and for a time, the communists left them alone. They just reduced their, their, their money and slightly worsened their diet, but left them mainly alone until April 1918. They were moved again to Yekaterinburg in the Urals. And it was there in July 1918 that the fateful decision was taken to kill all the Romanovs that the communists had their hands on. Let's maybe talk about their time in captivity then, because we have some wonderful insights into uh, their domestic life, uh, Nicholas's relationship with his wife. That seems to have been a very firm bond. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They were devoted to each other. Yeah. And Alexandra seems to have been guilty because she blamed herself for yeah. having given the children, the passed on her hemophilia. Yes. Yeah. And they were devoted to looking after the young lad who, who was going to be the heir to the throne. Actually, that, now that's an interesting thing. Nicholas II, although he wanted to hand on autocratic powers to his son, Alexei, uh, said to one of the uh, witnesses uh, who later gave his testimony to the inquiry that it would be all right if he handed on autocratic powers to his son because his son wouldn't have to take an autocratic oath like he had taken, which bound him to maintain the autocracy. His son would therefore be free to be more liberal than he had felt having sworn under God to uh, maintain the autocracy. He, he felt that he had to stick to that oath. I don't think that's the whole story, though. I mean, I think he was obsessed with uh, making Russia as glorious as he thought it had been in the 17th century before the reforms of Peter the Great. He, he really had... Um, an obsession with dressing up in 17th century costumes, dressing the court in 17th century costume, bringing back the old religion, in fact, because the, the old Russian Orthodox religion had been reformed rather, rather peremptorily by successive czars. And, and he, he wanted to go back to the old... That was, that was another reason why he was so connected with Grigory Rasputin. I mean, he loved to meet peasants going on pilgrimages. He knew his peasants, if they happened to be devote, devout pilgrims. What he didn't know were the other peasants, the other peasants who just thought, life's just too hard in this country. Life's unfair. 
the scales are weighed against us. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I found that really uh, striking about him, that it took him to lose power and then to read books. Yes. Read all these. He read like yeah. a, he read like fury. What else was there to do apart from chop wood and clear the snow? Once he'd done that, what was he going to do with himself all day? And he read. And he read books about provincial Russia, Siberia, places he didn't have a clue about. Uh, and he found out about peasants and merchants, people he, he had never come in contact with because all the peasants he came in contact with were devout pilgrims who would never say boo to a, a czar, far less a goose. Uh, Is there a suggestion that perhaps he should have been doing this reading while he was still in power? Yeah, and his father, Alexander III, I mean, I have to say to all of you that this was new for me, writing this book. I'd always dealt with um, Russian communist leaders before. So it was like virgin territory moving into uh, doing research on this and, and the court rituals and the ceremonies and the hierarchy of, of uh, royal life and all the rest of it. Um, his father was a great bear of a man, huge Russian, uh, who, who was overbearing and who, who said, no son of mine is going to read Russian literature because it's subversive. So he was brought up not having read Tolstoy. He read War and Peace only when he fell from power, when he had time to read it, and his father was long dead. So Alexander III gave him a technical... He had a very good technical education, geology and the scientific subjects. Um, but uh, but um, there was a huge gap in his knowledge of ordinary Russians. He also loved Sherlock Holmes. Oh, he loved Sherlock Holmes, And, yeah. and I'm, and I'm yeah. always amazed yeah. in the 1910s, there are so many people all around the world yeah. uh, caught up with this. And Michael Collins uh, loved Sherlock Holmes. Did he? in the 1910s. And then at the exact same time, here you have Nicholas II yeah, following yeah. his adventures yeah. uh, over there. And also the stories of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes. But that kind of tied in with a bit of the anti-Semitism, though. It, it does, because uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel stories are... I mean, I don't know about, about you, but I read them as a kid, and I, I wasn't aware that the, yeah. there was this undercurrent of anti-Semitism, but if you read them as an adult, you, you can't miss it. Um, and, of course, if you're in captivity and you're a former czar, you're on the side of the, the people who are trying to undermine the French Revolution. So these stories must have, must have um, touched a nerve, I think, for all, all of his kids. The, the son and the, and the daughters and, the, and his wife. This was a man who read these stories out to them in the evenings 
by the fireside after dinner. Huge long stories, Scarlet Pimpernel. He also read The Count of Monte Cristo. Well, you don't have to be a, a fantastic psychological analyst to see why that might have struck a nerve, uh, a prisoner who wants his freedom. Um, and speaking of a prisoner wanting his freedom, uh, th there are hints or suggestions mm. that maybe there might be a rescue attempt. Yeah. Uh, how likely was a rescue attempt? Well, that's a really good question. I couldn't find much evidence for effective monarchism in 1917 and 1918. It was the dog that didn't bark. And there wasn't really much of an effective counter-revolution in general. It's not the same as Germany in 1919 or Hungary in 1919, where there were revolutions in Munich and in Budapest uh, where governments emerged, but they were quickly knocked aside by military counter-revolutions. That didn't happen in Russia. The monarchists were demoralized uh, or very amateurish. And a lot of the military counter-revolutionaries didn't get their act together until the end of 1918, by which time Nicholas II was dead. And in any case, a lot of those counter-revolutionaries were not monarchist because the Russian imperial army, the officer corps of it, half of them came from the peasantry. By the beginning of the First World War, most peasants wanted a big change in Russia. Most peasants thought that it was an unfair society. So there the weren't the same sources for an effective counter-revolution that could quickly be put together. They were really quite amateurish attempts, but they were penetrated by charlatans and informers um, who who stymied efforts to rescue Nicholas II. And what about, was there any chance of him ending up in exile in England? Ah. Because that was, mm. there were some tentative moves, especially yeah. in those early days. Were, would the British have taken him? And mm. certainly the Russians didn't seem to want to let him leave. Well, I did go into this because there is quite a literature on the British monarchy, uh, the British court, refusing ultimately to allow him to go into exile in the countryside in England. And he wanted, he, initially that's what he wanted to do. But the more I looked at it, the more I looked at the documents, to blame George V for this is excessive. 
George V didn't want, ultimately he didn't want Nicholas II to come to England because the British labor movement was vehemently anti-Tsarist because the Tsar was looked on as the hangman of Europe at the time. So the British left just was against all of that. And George V wanted a united nation, a united, united kingdom. So ultimately he, he turned down the request. But you have to start thinking about the practicalities of what would have been involved had the request been granted. Nicholas II would have had to travel from Petrograd on the Baltic Sea coast, way up the railway line to the north uh, around Archangel. He would have had to get into a Royal Navy uh, vessel and cross the North Sea. Now, the North Sea was infested by German submarines. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy choice to make. It wasn't um, a risk-free option. But he would never have got to Archangel because the Soviets had already been formed. And it wasn't just the communists. It was all the socialists said, don't put any member of the imperial family on a rail train going northwards, we won't allow the train to move. So I doubt if he'd have even got through to Petrograd, far less up to Archangel. So he was stranded. So the provisional government said, such is the antagonism to this man. After all, he, this was a man who had worsened the prison conditions of the socialists who are now, now in power, partly in power. Uh, he, he had a really bad reputation. Mild-mannered though he was in his personal life, he had empowered his ministers to be brutes. Uh, this is, a, well, it's not a paradox, is it? Lots of politicians are good family men and women. Um, so I don't think he would have ever got out of Russia. I've actually just become distracted by seeing myself on the big screen. It's like uh, Bill O'Hurley, the late Bill when he had his football panel with Eamon Dunphy and, <laughs> and John Giles here arguing about something. Uh, uh, tell me about Alexander Kerensky, because he seems to have mm. admired him and almost seems to have regretted that he didn't get to know him earlier in life. Yeah. Alexander Kerensky led the provisional government that ruled from the February to the October revolutions. And Alexander Kerensky was at first Minister of Justice and then Minister of War and then the uh, Minister-President. And he was in charge of Nicholas II in all of those um, capacities. And Nicholas II, when he thought about what was good for Russia, even when Russia wasn't at war, he judged it by the criterion of 
what is good for the armed forces. So he had a, a preoccupation with the military question. And he saw that Alexander Kerensky wanted to fight the war to a victorious end. And so, almost reluctantly, he, he grew to admire Alexander Kerensky, a man who had spoken in courts of law against Tsarism. So he was an enemy of Nicholas II, but the two of them got on rather well together. And he treated him respectfully and he would did. give him a title and everything. Yes, he did. Um, I think the person he most admired, though, was one of his jailers, uh, Vasily Pankratov, uh, who was an ex-prisoner in Siberia. And when Nicholas II arrived in Tobolsk, uh, and he discovered that the man who was going to be the commissar on behalf of Alexander Kerensky to uh, oversee his conditions knew a lot about Siberia. He asked him, uh, how come you know so much about Siberia? He was so naive, Nicholas II was so naive that he didn't understand that this was a man his own government had sent to Siberia and Pankratov had learnt about Siberia by being stuck there uh, by the imperial government. But Pankratov talked and talked and talked about the villages, about the non-Russian uh, native communities, uh, about the geology of Siberia. Uh, and Nicholas II really respected him, and the two of them got on basically like a house on fire. Uh, it was a really odd relationship. It, it was prob he probably had uh, more intimate conversations about public affairs with his jailer than he had ever had with his ministers when he was in power because they never knew what he really thought. Pankratov knew exactly what he thought. Can we date precisely when Nicholas knew that he was going to be executed? From the beginning, was it a, a real fear with him or did he think that they might be fortunate and just be kept in prison for a lengthy time or maybe exiled eventually? At what point did he realise that things had become very serious? I think to begin with, he, he thought that he would be living in confined conditions and that uh, when the political settlement happened in Russia, when the Constituent Assembly met and the new government was formed and victory was achieved in the First World War, then some kind of civilised outcome could be achieved for his family. So 
he started out not understanding how dangerous the situation really was. But as soon as the Bolsheviks, the, the communists, took power in the October Revolution, he knew that something um, very drastic had changed. Uh, but still, he he's still he's still dining in the evenings with menu cards being produced. He's still having three, four, five course meals. Um, still, some of the guards are slipping uh, notes to him when they're going off duty, indicating that perhaps even the guards aren't so hostile to him as appeared on the surface. He, he really didn't see it coming in any clear way. And when the moment happened in the early hours of the morning in July 1918, he asked the execution squad, what are you doing? He couldn't believe that they were actually going to shoot not just him, but his wife, his son, who had to be carried downstairs, um, the four daughters, one of the dogs, the doctor. It was, it was something beyond his imagination. It was particularly brutal. And why did they have to execute everyone? Why did they feel that this was necessary? The communists understood that the counter-revolution might be slow in getting itself organized, but it was on, on the move. And that at some point in the future, it might occur to one of the counter-revolutionary army commanders to put a Romanov at the head, perhaps just as a figurehead of one of the white armies. And that might rally peasant opinion. And they really, they really suspected that there was more monarchism there was more basic monarchism in the Russian people than had appeared yet in 1917. And there might be a resurgence of nostalgia for the Romanovs because the horrors of the Romanov period would be forgotten. So they were very clinical in their assessment. There, no Romanov that we have our hands on is going to come out of this alive. So they didn't just kill that bit of the family, they killed all the Romanos that they held in captivity. And the Dowager Duchess was one of the lucky ones because she, would, she had gone down to Crimea uh, early in 1917, and she was lucky enough to be under German occupation. She didn't think of it like that at the time. Then the First World War ended and uh, the Royal Navy arrived and, and took her into captivity. And she, she found it very hard to believe. Even she found it very hard to believe 
that they had murdered so many of her her relatives. And no part of the story has been more mythologized. There are so many legends and rumors and yeah. stories of who escaped uh, yeah. people ending up in America, Disney yeah. movies made about it. Yes. Uh, Anastasia. First, why, why have there been so many myths and legends? And uh, were you confident that you were able to dispel all of them? Well, you have to read the book. Oh, you've read the book. You've read the book. You've read the book. But uh, I think it... I hope I've convinced everybody that... I mean, how could they have missed? How on earth, if you're down in a dank cellar and you have a whole array of marksmen pointing rifles, rather pistols, at uh, defenceless... Uh, individuals who are bleary with uh, lack of sleep. I mean, how could they have missed? And then when you look at the letters that were exchanged between the uh, investigative authorities and uh, some of the detectives in the Urals, and it's clear as a bell that those that those uh, stories that were put about, some of them were put about by the Bolsheviks themselves, um, idiotically, because they, um, they thought that they would confuse the political situation by saying, uh, we only executed Nicholas II. Well, that was bound to lead to stories that um, the others had... Um, survived and moreover the possibility that some of them might have escaped so the Bolsheviks made um, a rod for their own back why did they do that because they didn't want the the public disrepute of uh, the fact that they had killed completely innocent children so, so they lied about it for a good number of years until it became until it became the case that false Nicholases and false Alexeis and false Anastasias were popping up in village after village, and it, was, it wasn't just this this one we all know about in in uh, Poland and then. Uh, Germany and then in the USA. There were dozens of them. And it, it was their own stupid fault. They were too clever by half. How um, did the Russian people react to hearing the news that the Tsar and his family had been executed? Did it, did it lead to a, a change or a sudden wave of newfound sympathy for them? Well, it must have done if... if enough of them recognized these false pretenders to the, yeah. to the throne. There must have been uh, a change in the opinion of a lot of Russians. And that was bound to happen because we're talking about a civil war where the communists were regarded by most peasants 
as acting as brutal urban invaders. So as opinion turned against the communists, so some opinion then turned back towards Nicholas II. I was very impressed to discover that uh, mm. you did all of your own translations. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. for the book, which uh, I think is, 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 mm. is, is, is a great achievement. Uh, mm. In terms of the new sources that you found, do you think that you were, because there's a lot of new material about those last few months and about yeah. the executions, uh, is there enough in the, new, in the new sources to provide a new interpretation of those final days and months? The thing I really think is basic to what I've tried to do is to show who the real Nicholas II was. And I think the only way of doing that is by looking at these newly available sources and asking that question, what does it tell us? What does it tell us about the real Nicholas II? And that, and that was the whole, the whole impetus for, for the research. Um, did you have sympathy for him at the end? Yeah. How could you, how could you not? Um, yeah. I mean, it was a brutal end. Uh, yes, I did. While being cognizant of his terrible defects, but no one deserves to die that way. Um, it was a terrible end. And uh, of course, yeah, feels, and and you know the daily task of keeping up morale because the Empress Alexandra, she went into something like a depression. So if he had lost, if he had lost his morale, the whole, the whole family would have collapsed, and and he didn't, and he was a, a yeah I did have sympathy with him. I like a, a monarch who goes out and clears the snow. Uh, I like a czar who, who saws up the wood for the fire um, in the evenings. I mean, there was a sort of simple squire-like. I don't think squires are all that wonderful when I think about it, I suppose. But there's something decent about him, even though he was in so many political ways, truly awful. You mentioned to me before we came out that you have a very interesting subject for your next book. You do oh, like yeah. jumping around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you went a little bit back in time for this. Yes. You are right up to the present day with your new project. Yes. That's right. Can you tell us? Yes. <laughs> um, um, I'm doing a book on Putin. Yeah. <laughs> so after working on Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, yeah. Nicholas II, yeah. it's a complete contrast now you should yeah. go to. Yeah, I thought I'd go for a Democrat this time. <laughs> <laughs> Are we suddenly uh, going to discover that he's a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes as well? And uh, yeah. You know, I think he. Yeah, I'd love to know what he reads. Uh, what would he have made of Nicholas II? Oh, he. That's a really interesting point. 
uh, Putin is very secretive about much of what he does as an ex-KGB man. What else would you expect? But he publishes online more or less every speech he gives, more or less every interview as well. Uh, it makes the task of a, a historian much easier. And um, he said a, a good number of things about Nicholas II. And Nicholas II comes out m with much more credit from Putin than does Lenin. Lenin comes out with more or less universal contempt. This is a man who's an ex-communist and an ex-KGB lieutenant colonel who has no time whatsoever for Lenin. Why? Because Lenin set up the federal structure of the USSR, which gave boundaries to Ukraine and uh, Georgia, and which meant that in the early 1990s, when the USSR had internal disintegrative problems, each of these republics could declare their independence and know exactly what country they were. And for Putin, that's, uh, quote, the, the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, the breakup of the USSR. So he has no time whatsoever for Lenin. And he, he, he has a great deal of human sympathy. He's a complex man, Putin. Human sympathy for uh, Nicholas II. And um, above all, he wants to avoid glorifying Lenin's revolution or any revolution. Putin doesn't want revolutions for pretty obvious reasons uh, in his own time. He doesn't want to, to happen to him what happened to Nicholas II. I think probably when he thinks about Nicholas II, he's probably thinking, this is what Russians can do to you. I think we will open it to questions now. Uh, people would like to raise their hands, the lady in the front. Uh, before I do, just to say, uh, I was really expecting a crowd of maybe 40, 50 people for this. And it's a, it's a testament and a tribute to our, to our guest and our author uh, that we have 400 or more of you. And it always amazes me to see, to be reminded of what love people have in this country for history. Yeah, it's but great. When the next book is out on Putin, we will not have a theater big enough in Dublin. <laughs> we will have to go to the Board Gosh Theater or something uh, to fit everyone in. Perhaps, uh, for perhaps, last. You, perhaps you can have a Q&A with Vladimir Putin. Uh. <laughs> uh, not with me, I value my life. <laughs> uh, uh, the lady here at the front. Yeah, I just wanted to ask whether any of Nicholas's predecessors would have been more effective at heading off the revolution than, than he was. Oh, that's a very good one. Um, that's a really good question, yeah. The longer it went on, 
the 19th century went on, the, the more and more difficult it was to organize a reform that would avoid revolution. So by the time Nicholas II took over, revolution was becoming more and more likely, especially if Russia went to war. There was nearly a revolution when the war took place with Japan in 1904. In 1905, there was nearly a revolution. So who among his immediate predecessors had the kind of vision to recognize the need for reform. Really the only one who had a consistent commitment to reform was Alexander II, who was assassinated in 1881. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't probably tough enough as a a czar to have seen it, it would have been really difficult. You really needed an exceptional politician to, to pull it off. It would have been really, really difficult, but at, at least somebody might have attempted it. But it would have had to have been, it would have been better if it had been tried earlier. Actually, practically every uh, Western political leader and monarch was saying this to the czars. You are, you are making a grave for yourselves. Queen Victoria wrote to the Empress Alexandra saying, please get your new husband to initiate reforms. And she wrote back saying to Queen Victoria, you just don't understand Russia. This is the only way you can rule this country. So I think it would have been really tough. What was their relationship again? They were, grand, was it granddaughter, niece? Oh, or? gosh, you got me on the... No, sorry, I'm not. Tough there. Um, There's definitely some... That, oh, yeah, yeah and she, yeah. she lived... She lived... Um, she lived at Windsor Castle with yeah. Queen Victoria. She was brought up as a... As a Brit. Yeah. Very good. The she turned herself into a Russian, though. She became more orthodox in a mystical Russian orthodox way than, um, than most Russians. She was Queen Victoria's granddaughter. Granddaughter, yes. Very thank good. you. Thank Very you. Good. Excellent. Thank uh, you. Hello. Could you uh, comment on um, the Tsar's decision to go to? the front and take a personal command of the armies and how much of a turning point that was or, or one of the turning points in his, in his downfall? Um, the decision to go to general headquarters meant that he was geographically distant from the capital. And that did mean that when the crisis hit, in February and March 1917, he, he, he was dependent on information reaching him from, the pe from Petrograd that was being supplied by people who didn't like him and didn't want him. So he had made, made it um, difficult for himself by going to Mogilyov to, near to the Eastern Front. Um, I don't think it actually had 
a really decisive impact on the February Revolution, though. The February Revolution was noisy. There were deaths. But considering what was happening, it was amazingly peaceful in the other cities. Once power fell in Petrograd, it fell everywhere, more or less within days. Uh, and it was largely peaceful outside uh, Petrograd. And one thing uh, um, we have to bear in mind about all of this was that it was of tremendous importance in the First World War uh, because the, the, the British and the French governments thought that now they could really fight an effective war with an effective Russian ally at last because the Russian people would be behind the Russian government at last. Uh, the Germans took the opposite view. They thought they would win the war because they could break up Russia. This would be the start of the... They were much more correct that this would lead to the disintegration of Russia and that in that instance they'd be able to transfer hundreds of German divisions from the Eastern Front to the Western Front and beat the British and the French before the Americans came to reinforce them. So it was an event of the fall of the Tsar wasn't just some monarchical uh, turnabout of relatively little importance. It was absolutely crucial to that bit of the First World War. It, it was regarded as such by Nicholas II, of, of course. Very good. We have a question here. Can I just ask... Um, going back to the night of the uh, execution. Yes. Is there any documentary evidence from any of the soldiers or the people who shot the Romanovs? Did anybody write about that? Mm. I, I'm just curious about that. Yes. The, they, uh, that, that's uh, a really interesting question. Um, some of the some of the members of the execution squad were captured by the white counter-revolutionary armies and then were interrogated and their testimony is in the documents that I, I looked at. So they usually started by saying they had nothing to do with it but then their, their names were on the list of uh, the guards and, and the, the whites um, extracted the information from them. So we have quite a lot of testimony about how the Romanos were treated in the days immediately before, um, before the execution. Um, nuns were being turned, turn, turn, orthodox nuns were being turned away from the building in the days before the execution. Things started to happen differently. The place was uh, locked up more severely than before. Uh, um, yeah, we've got quite a lot of information about that. Um, Very good. We have a question on this side. Uh, thank you for your talk. The earlier, if you like, shocking defeat of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, 
uh, that must have been a very shocking to the whole country and as well mm. as the regime and shown that the regime was vulnerable and the whole structure, religious and, and uh, royal structure in Russia was vulnerable mm. and I presume that might have had a, an encouraging effect on those groups that wish to overthrow the regime. Yes. Now, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, deci the, the decision to go to war with Japan was uh, followed by catastrophe. The, the Russians were defeated both on land and at sea at the Battle of Tsushima. And this was the first great defeat for a European power by an Asian power. So um, the casual racism of Russians uh, was suddenly meeting this bulldozer, which was Japanese military efficiency. And added to that was the fact that the Romanov dynasty uh, taking away many of the civic rights of the Russian people always said, in return, we are making Russia great. We are making Russia respected in the world. So the whole ideology of Tsarism was what you get in return for your loss of rights as a people is international greatness. And then suddenly in 1904, this was put into question. So the Tsar's position was hugely weakened in practical terms, but especially in reputational terms. Make Russia great again. Yes. Uh, I know the gentleman in the front row, Stephen, so I'm sure this is going to be a great question. Thank you, Professor, very much. My question is that I read somewhere that the Tsar and his family were canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah. Did that happen exactly why? Uh, what was behind all that? I'd be interested to hear more. Yeah. When... When... Communism fell. The, the Russians, or rather the Russian authorities, sought to fashion a new identity for the country based on Russia's continuous greatness. And they tried to iron out the bits of history involving violence especially revolutionary violence. And they started to talk about Russia as a continuous civilization, stretching from Tsarism, going through the better aspects of communism and on to post-communism. And one way of uh, persuading Russians that... Uh, all of the perturbations of the present in the 1990s uh, were bearable, was to say to Russians, look, um, uh, 
the fate of Nicholas II was tragic. And he was murdered by evil doers. And he was a martyr. So both the political authorities and the church united around the idea that uh, Nicholas II was a saintly figure. And um, so this would help bind the wounds. And Vladimir Putin uh, claims to be an Orthodox Church believer, and he's one of the promoters of this, this way of treating the Tsar. As I've, everything I've said this evening, he was very far from saintly. If you think that um, anti-Semitism is um, awful, then you can't possibly regard him as a saintly human being. Uh, but, but Russians are being induced to take this view of Russia. Forget about the revolutions as having been great. Forget about violence. Just look at the best things about life in Russia when things were stable. Uh, and what Vladimir Putin wants is a stable Russia without without uh, revolutions. And he, he regards his national ideas as being part of a, um, a campaign to recreate Russia, which involves religion. Religion is very important to the national ideology. Uh, Orthodox Christianity in Russia is is not very interested in, well, as putting it mildly, is not interested in democracy. Uh, most Christian churches around the world are interested in the propagation of democratic values. This is not the case with the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, it's very depressing to, to say this, but... Uh, that's, that's the situation there. Okay, we just have time for one final question. So the gentleman here. Hi, um, my question actually goes back to the relationship between Lenin and the Tsar himself, because if there's two men that I've ever seen who accidentally work in tandem with one another, it's definitely those two. In your book on Lenin, you write about how he got introduced to this sort of political world by the assassin, by the, the murdering of his brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also as well, he's influenced by agrarian terrorism, I think is yes. the phrase you use. Um, so he, when he gets into in college, but then between his exiles, between his time in Switzerland, London, he obviously gets into it. But Lenin seemed to be one of the main believers of the fact that Russia was ready for his socialism and communism, that yeah. they progressed, in his opinion, beyond capitalism. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, obviously, I imagine in your book, you probably talk about the fact that it's mostly a rural-based economy and how the fact that capitalism, as not only we would know it, but many of the educated people at the time would have known it, was certainly not ready for it. So my question would be sort of, how did the relationship between the two, where the failure to modernize, the failure to industrialize by Nicholas II, accidentally sort of work in tandem with oh, right. his sort of own, Lenin's own idea of Russia that's yeah. ready to become a communist sort of state. 
That's an interesting question. Um, I think most historians now would say that Russia was quite successful in half-industrializing by the time of the First World War, that it was moving, that, that actually the Germans uh, wanted the war because they wanted to stop the further industrialization of a potential enemy, namely Russia. So uh, Russia, Russia had a very vibrant culture. I mean, if you think of the, the Russian ballet of that period, Russian music, Russian literary culture, uh, it, it was a very, very vibrant culture. And uh, some Russian peasants in some regions were producing vast amounts of grain. And Ukraine had become the breadbasket of uh, Central Europe. So things were really happening in Russia. And ironically, this means that Lenin... Lenin had a lot right. Lenin understood that, that actually Russia wasn't in a rut. It was changing, but it hadn't changed enough to be stable. It was in a transitional phase. And uh, that, that was what laid it open to such uh, disturbances when it entered the... First World War, it might have got away with it if it had beaten the Germans in the first months. If, if the Germans had gone down to defeat in the first months, then that, things might have been different. But the war went on for another three years, and that, that really spelt the doom of the Romanov dynasty. It, it was game up for Nicholas II. Well, I think that's an excellent question on which to end our discussion. Uh, all I will say is that it's a brilliant story. and It's told brilliantly in this book. So Robert will be available to sign copies of the book outside. Uh, I'll be back on News Talk tonight talking about British rule in India at seven. So I'll give you all a big shout out uh, for coming out this afternoon. But I think our thanks to our wonderful guest today, Robert Stokes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Hist